So if you got a, a Bible this morning, go ahead and open it to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I'm going to open with a question. And my question is, what has been the most important moment in your life? How's that for a question? What's the most important moment in your life? The piece of the puzzle that gives all other pieces their place in the big picture, which is the image that you kind of see behind me. There's a movie that came out in 1999 called The Sixth, Sixth Sense, and if you haven't seen it, you've had time, and I'm going to spoil it, okay? 1999, that was 23 years ago, you've had a few moments, and so if you don't want to hear the ending, just plug your ears for the next like three or four minutes. But there's a movie called The Sixth Sense, it's starring Haley Joel Osment and uh, Bruce Willis. It's about a boy with a supernatural gift. I'm going to call it a gift because of what we end up seeing in it, but he sees dead people. He can see dead people, and that's sort of the moment that he whispers it to Bruce Willis' character and says, I see dead people. And that may be the soundbite that you may remember back in the 90s whenever people were talking about that movie a lot. But that supernatural gift sort of begins, and the, the glimpse that we see it is more of a curse because the little boy that sees dead people is haunted by them, and he's terrified of them. But later, we see that they're not trying to harm him. They're trying to use him in a way that is for his benefit and for their benefit. And so he's going to see that it's going to become a gift for him because his child psychologist, which is Bruce Willis's character, encourages him to ask them what they want. And so what he ends up doing by seeing them is vindicating them in their death. And I'm not going to go into that, but which really helps to see with his child psychologist, again played by Bruce Willis, that helps him on this journey that steps in and says, hey, you know, you should really ask these guys and ask them what can you do for them. Maybe they want you to do something for them, which by the end of the movie you find out, which really helps to mend the doctor's prior failures as a doctor and as a spouse, being Bruce Willis's character, that he was helping the boy, but that he didn't realize that the boy was actually helping him. But then the big aha moment at the end of the movie, here's the part where you want to plug your ears, is that you realize that Bruce Willis's character was dead the whole time. <gasps> How about that? It was dead the whole time, and the boy was actually helping to vindicate him and his death. It's one of the greatest movie endings in cinema history because it really stirs the audience to think, wow, this is totally different than I sort of saw it becoming. It's an aha moment. And so what happens after that is you can go back and rewatch the movie and you find out that while you were oblivious before, really every scene before and after the big reveal is enriched and makes sense in light of the center puzzle piece falling into place. Does that sound like the Bible? That the big aha moment in the biblical story is the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And you could say that it was laid out across all of the Old Testament, right in front of the disciples in Jesus' day, or those close to Jesus. It's right there. But the Bible is clear that even those closest to Jesus did not see this big reveal coming. But Jesus' life, and every life whose hope is in God, finds its ultimate purpose in an empty grave, the centerpiece of our collective puzzles. You see, Jesus can promise to give his sheep eternal life, as in John three sixteen, that death is defeated, all he wants. But if the shepherd himself can't guarantee it by himself defeating death, we can have no hope that he could also cause us to defeat the same grave. But he did. And he does. This is the aha moment of Scripture. And because of that moment, the resurrection it must be the aha moment of your life as well. And how we respond to that moment today 
three or four weeks after Easter, it matters. The way that we respond to the resurrection matters. Every day it matters. And we're going to see this with two individuals in our text today, John and Mary Magdalene. So let's look at John 20, verses 1 through 18. I'm going to read it all the way through, and then we'll come back and make some quick observations, okay? Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. By the way, remember that term up there, the first day of the week, Sunday. Came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, which we're going to argue is John today, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out to the other disciple, went out with the other disciple, and then they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the, into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father or to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said the things to her. If you're not regular to fellowship, then you wouldn't know this, but we've been walking through the book of John for quite a while now, and we find ourselves finally at the resurrection passage, which means we're very close to the end of the book, and it's so good from here on out. Today is no exception for that. Jesus has already atoned by, for sin. He has paid the ransom for sinners by becoming the curse and dying on a cross. He's transformed individuals in his death even. We saw he transformed a criminal on the cross, onlookers at the cross, and even the religious elites last week in Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Last week ended on a Friday with Jesus' burial. That's where the whole crucifixion took place, on a Friday. And today begins on a Sunday, which means there's something that falls in between that we know nothing about that day, right? It is Saturday, the Sabbath, the seventh day, Saturday being their Sabbath. And as in the garden, it was so that the seventh day was the day of rest, silence. The entire country shuts down. And then Sunday comes. Early the next morning, which is just a regular day, a devoted follower of Jesus named Mary Magdalene decides to go to Jesus' tomb to check out the gravesite and to treat his body with spices, a rotting corpse to beautify it some. By the way, I just wanted to share, this is not really pertinent to the passage, but I wanted to share with you why her name was Mary Magdalene. It's not her last name. Throw that map up there, if you will, uh, Jeff. 
There it is. So that's Galilee, which is just north of Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem would be, where our passage is taking place. And Galilee is the place where Jesus did a lot of his miracles and most of his ministry, in fact, just about all of his ministry. We've talked about places like Bethsaida. We've talked about places like Capernaum and Nazareth, which you'll see up there. Again, it's tiny letters, but it's uh, just on the southernmost part of Galilee. Right there you see Nazareth. Right above that to the right is Cana, which is where Jesus performed the wedding at Cana, the miracle of water to wine. But if you look at the Decapolis is what it says, but that's really uh, just southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Right there in the middle of them, it's that blue space, the Sea of Galilee. And to the western bank of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see Magdala. That's where Mary's from. She's not Mary Magdalene being her last name. She's from Magdala, just like Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. She's Mary Magdalene. She's the only one we read about with that term, and so it kind of sounds like it's her last name. Anyway, I just wanted to share that in case you're ever curious about why that's her name. So it's used there to distinguish between the million other Marys that we read about in Scripture. That's why it's there, all right? Uh, you can take that down. Thank you. But she was going to head to the grave to treat this rotting corpse with spices to honor Jesus even in his death, a good friend of hers that she admired and was a devoted follower of. And Mary would expect, as she showed up that morning, uh, Roman guards that would need to roll away the heavy stone placed in front of the tomb to grant her access to be able to do what she wants to do. But she is shocked to find what she dreaded. Notice I used the word dreaded. Not celebrated, but dreaded. And that's that there's no stone there. Someone seems to have stolen the body. Look at verses 1 and 2. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, super early, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which we're going to say is John. I'm going to explain that in a moment. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. We think it's John because of uh, several things, but mainly he has certain eyewitness events and testimonies, including what he sees when he stoops into the grave, that only John would know. And so, uh, massive consensus is the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who is having things whispered into his ear at the Last Supper is John. And so we're going to say it's John and Peter here in our passage today. The picture we see is that she sees this from a distance. The stone is not there, and so she, instead of investigating, runs to get the guys. No doubt afraid, upset, unlikely, in tears, or certainly in tears already. Needing comfort, needing answers. What appeared to be a day of anger and sorrow, though, would become a day of joy and triumph. We're going to examine the responses now of John and of Mary Magdalene, two central figures, because their responses, I think, are good indicators of what our response should be today. So if you're taking notes this morning, and you'll see on the screen behind me, I got a couple things that I want to leave you guys with, and uh, then we'll get out of here. And that's the first one, uh, a response to the aha moment, the resurrection. Number one is to embrace life change. To embrace life change. The resurrection, this aha moment, should lead us to have a changed way of life. We'll get to the second one in a few moments, but the first one is to have a changed way of life. Mary runs to grab the two guys that are closest to Jesus, his best friends, that are at home some distance from the tomb. Mary's report is obviously wrong that Jesus' body has been stolen, but they don't know that. And so someone seemingly having robbed the grave of their very best friend, they obviously will sprint to the scene of the crime and want to investigate this for themselves. Look at verses 3 through 5. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Listen to this. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, again John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. I love that John simply says, I'm faster. That's, what other reason could there be that he says that other than to say, 
me and Peter have this back and forth, and clearly I'm the fast one. No, there are some details here that sort of give this legs, pun intended. I didn't mean to say that, but it came out. But he's also a more gentle, analytical, and calculated one. Of the two, John and Peter, John is very calculated, very analytical, and very meek and mild. Peter is not those things, which we've already talked about. He's very emotional. He runs into action. He's impulsive, which again, we've seen a number of times, which makes sense out of what Peter's response is, where John sort of leans in and stoops and looks. Look what Peter does in verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, probably miles and miles after, right? Because John's so fast. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Not stooping, by the way. He went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. What's happening here is that John stops short of the opening of the tomb, which again, seeing a stone roll away, you see pictures and stuff, sort of illustrations, that this tomb would be carved out of the side of <clears throat> a mountain. Now, the reason this is important of John stopping short is because he wouldn't dare go in. Because if he went in to where the dead body was, had been decaying over the weekend, contact with the dead bodies, but that would be considered, and therefore you'd be deemed ceremonially unclean. There would be ramifications for that. He wouldn't get in trouble. He would just have to go through these rituals and these rites in order to make himself ceremonially clean before God. And so he stopped short and kind of stooped to look in where the dead body had lain. With an obstructed view, he sees this expensive linen wraps that are on the ground, which to John would be unusual. It's unusual because it would get him thinking. Why would grave robbers or even Roman officials leave behind expensive linens? And you can just imagine John's thoughts, and he sees the linens, and he's like, that's weird because those are expensive. The soldiers just cast lots for Jesus' garments. These are expensive gar linens. Why are these here? And not only that, but if they're going to steal the body away, it's bloody and it's nasty. They would want to keep those linen wraps on. Because that is a really disgusting endeavor to transport a body without the things that are keeping the blood and the pus and the nasty stuff off of your hands and your sleeves and your torso. So John's confused. A bloody mess to transport without them. They're expensive garments, and yet they're lying there. But when passionate Peter enters, he saw more than just the linen body wraps. Look at verse 7. And the face cloth Peter saw, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. We're told, by the way, in Luke chapter 24, that Peter went away from this moment, perhaps hopeful, but also confused, but not John. Finally, John determines that it's worth it to take a look for himself, but there was no confusion in his mind. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, there he is again, a little backhanded there, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must raise from the dead, rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The reason why I believe John believed here is because robbers, burglars, don't take their time. This apparently was a, a time was taken. Folded up, it was neat. Expensive garments still laying there. Burglars don't take their time. I saw a video uh, this week, I think it was this week, maybe last week. Did you guys see this of uh, some guys that tried to rob a Best Buy? I don't know where this was. Some guys that tried to rob a Best Buy in the light of day during working hours. They ran, or they had run, and they, they kind of had their hoods up and they were just, you know, doing this and they go in there. It looked very suspicious on camera, at least. And I watched this video. Please go watch the video because I'm not going to do it justice. 
They go up to the, the, the table, the little display table that has, you know, like iPads or phones that are on. The, and, you know, they have them kind of set up on these little things. You know what I'm talking about? If you go to like an Apple store or something, they're on this thing and there's like a cord that's plugged into them. Anyway, the guys sort of like circle the table like sharks, you know, and they just start going, whoa, and just taking all this stuff off there. But it's all plugged in and it's like wired up under the table. It's really messy and it's stuff's going everywhere. They're probably breaking these devices while they're taking them. And in the background, again, the camera's big broad. You can see the entrance. And while these guys are rummaging through this stuff and just snatching all the expensive stuff that they can, you see the Best Buy workers in their beautiful blue polos. And they're like in a hu- like a football huddle. Like drawing up a play for defense. And <laughs> I'm not kidding. You can watch it. They make a break for it. The guys leave the table. It's a mess. And they start to run for the exit. And I kid you not. Please go watch this. Please. I kid you not, this is what you see from one of the work, several of the workers are getting in their like ready position. But one of them does this, and if you've ever seen sports or played sports, you know this. He does this. <laughs> like, sorry, hold on. Like he's about to spear the guy and tackle him. And they get in this defensive position like, all right, here, here we go. You know, like this, like they're about to get in a three-point stance and it doesn't go well for the robbers. But you go watch the video, it's fun. Um, I say that to say, that whole crime scene was a mess. They jerked those cords everywhere. They left a big mess. You know why? Because burglars don't take their time. And the conspiracy that's going to be set up here is that there was a quick escape with the body of Jesus to make it look like it was a resurrection. But if that's the case, burglars don't take their time. And that's why John sees it and he's very confused. Burglars in a hurry would not nicely fold the expensive face cloth off to itself. They also wouldn't leave the linen wraps. It didn't add up. The only possible but impossible answer was that Jesus had been risen. And imagine, imagine the mental process, no, the emotional gravitas of the best friend of Jesus who has just now held Jesus' mother as her son is brutally murdered and cries out, take care of each other now because I'm not going to be here anymore. Gut-wrenched over the weekend, suddenly has the realization that his friend and Lord is no longer dead. You see, Jesus had displayed his authority in many miraculous ways. Jesus or John had seen Jesus display his authority over the body and many other things. We start with the body. You know, we, um, we, we read this Jesus storybook Bible in my home, and um, sometimes we'll come to things, and, and my kids love to ask questions. The illustrations lead them to ask many, many questions, and it's hard to even get through a chapter because they ask so many questions. We were talking about um, Peter's, Peter cutting the, the soldier's ear off in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and shockingly, Zion, my son, who's three, wasn't the one that really latched onto that. It was Shiloh, my daughter, who's five. And she was really excited about this uh, very brutal scene, apparently. Um, but she, she started asking me, because I, I, I told her, I was like, well, he cut his ear off, and then Jesus put his ear back on. And she, <laughs> if you know Shiloh, she's very expressive with her face. And she says, um, did, did, he, did he tape it back on? <laughs> like that. And she's sitting around like, no, he didn't tape it back on. Jesus is just powerful, and he can do anything. And she said, oh, so like a wizard, but not. I said, mm, yeah, and, and she said, did he use a wand? I'm not making this up. Did he use a wand? And then I was like, no, and she goes, oh, like, like magic hands. 
I said, yes, I like magic hands. Now, and that was a good teachable moment because the point there is Jesus' miracles were not a result of magic. Please hear this. They were the result of creation yielding to the authority of creator. It's not about magic. It's about when you have created something that is yours, you mold it, you move it, and it obeys because it's yours. That's what Jesus' miracles were all about. And John had seen that. He'd seen his authority over the body. He'd seen his authority over the seas and the wind when Jesus simply said, be quiet now, and the storm stopped. He'd seen him multiply bread and fish. He'd seen him change water to wine, cast out demons out of animals, put it into animals rather. He'd seen him raise a dead man named Lazarus. The point is that John had seen that the created order submitted to the will of its creator. And now John knows the truth that Jesus is not just Lord over those things, he's also Lord over the grave. You know why? Not because of magic hands, but because he has authority over the creation. That's why Jesus said to Martha earlier in John eleven twenty five. he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, because he has authority. And John clearly doesn't even know how to react. Look at verse 10. Then the disciples says they just went back to their homes. You'd expect them to throw a party, but they're just shocked. And so they just go home. Peter walks away. The, the other gospels tell us he walks away hopeful yet confused. Did John even say anything? He would have sounded crazy for even suggesting it. But most importantly is what it's already told us in verse 8, and that's that he believed. You see, John already had saving faith. Certainly he already believed that Jesus was the Christ. The Bible's not... Uh, doesn't make any mistake about that. He was very clear that John was a believer. He already had saving faith, but it seems that his faith was solidified in this moment. He would never be the same. And this book and his ministry become evidences of that. Guys, we learn something from John's life. Far too many that belong to Jesus have saving faith, but are not being daily changed by their faith. Far too many believers, in this room included, have saving faith, made the decision, walked an aisle, been dunked under the water, but are not being daily molded, moved, changed by their faith. The difference maker, the aha moment for John was that he collided with the reality that Jesus died for him, but he also conquered the grave for him. So just a question for you then. Do you sense that you have become stagnant and dulled, wishing you could have a John at the grave moment? Yeah, but John saw, please hear this, the wonder of the empty grave doesn't come from physical eyes to see, but from spiritual eyes to see. The material was not the miracle of the resurrection. It was the spiritual. In short, maybe the reason that you aren't being transformed is because you've become dulled, desensitized to the amazing grace of God. I want to just talk to you about the weight of your sin for a moment, which is not fun to talk about. If someone in our society were to kill somebody, murder somebody, what would we call them? A murderer, right? Do they have to kill five people? Ten? One hundred? What constitutes a murderer? Just one. What constitutes an adulterer? Just one. We have too small of a view 
of our violations before a holy God. You don't have to lie a lot to be a liar. You're a liar, an adulterer, who is whored after other gods instead of the God that we are married to himself. You're a gossip because you have gossiped. You are a murderer because you have hated, an idolater because you have put something in the place where only God belongs. You are a sloth, a glutton, a worshiper of self, not because you necessarily have done it all the time, every time, but because you've done it. And once is enough. And we think, I'm not that bad. Surely that guy. No. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God without qualification, declared, condemned before that holy God. And the reason we must talk about that weight is because the only way we can use that modifying term, amazing grace, is because we must realize just how amazing it is that people like you and me can have intimacy and fellowship with that same God that we've offended. The only reason that you may be with him in glory, eternal life, is because he got off that concrete slab and victoriously conquered death. And when that becomes real to you, hear this, when that becomes real to you, as it just did for John, your mind, your heart, your behavior will not be perfect. But I promise you, you will have zeal and love for the Christ who purchased your freedom. And one more thing before we move on. This is why it's so important for pastors and preachers of the word to never, never assume that you understand and articulate well the core essential truths of the gospel. May I never assume that. Because listen, you have heard it hundreds of hundreds of times perhaps. But as anybody who's walking with Jesus can tell you, suddenly there comes a day when God turns the lights on and that puzzle piece falls into place and you say, he bore the wrath reserved for me. It's for me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's the moment. And I hope that you feel that and have that. Second, response to the aha moment is to embrace identity change. To embrace identity change. I love that John chose to include this, this little narrative about Mary Magdalene. You see, in Mary's story, God has given us a profound blessing to behold. Encountering Jesus turns sorrow into joy. You see, John was shocked, glad, stunned into joy. It didn't come out on the outside, but on the inside it was there. But notice the next words in verse 11. But Mary, she wasn't joyful at the time. She was in sorrow, and we know why. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, just like John. She's now at the tomb alone, 
guys have left. Maybe the time overlapped. Maybe they outran her, left before she got there. Not really sure, but she's brokenhearted. She stoops in as John did, but God graciously showed her more than just linen wraps, which is just amazing. And she saw two angels in white, verse 12, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they've laid him. The tone of what the angel said, why would you be weeping, is a, is a gentle rebuke. What are you doing? Why are you, why are you weeping? As if it's not the right reaction. She emphasizes, re-emphasizes her assumption about someone taking the body. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Probably Mary suddenly becomes aware of someone else near the tomb. She turns, maybe she hears this person with the same intent to ask the same question, which is what we're going to see, to find out if he or she, whoever this person is, knows what happened to the body. Maybe she sees Jesus sort of in her peripheral vision. Maybe Jesus is concealing his identity from her. Maybe it's at sunrise, which it is, and the sun is so, so bright behind his head that she can't even make out who it is. We're not sure, but what's next is important. 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? That same gentle rebuke, well, whom, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Remember from last week that Jesus was buried in an elaborate, expensive plantation garden tomb. You guys remember talking about that last week if you were here? He's buried in a very elaborate tomb. It said that it was in a garden, a garden plantation, a garden orchard tomb. So it makes sense that Mary thinks the gardener may know where the body was taking. It says tomb, right? 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. He says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, which is what she would have called him, teacher. Anguish and despair instantly are overcome by astonishment and delight. Jesus is the good shepherd. We looked at John 10, 3 and 4 already when he's talking about the good shepherd. It says that John, or that, that Jesus is the good shepherd. He calls his own sheep by name, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Mary. Wish I could have been on the fly on the wall for this one. What we see in Mary's life is that embracing Christ crucified but resurrected turns sorrow into joy. Embracing your new gospel identity turns sorrow into joy. Guys, we live in a sad world, don't we? And increasingly more sad. I think COVID made us as a society collectively more sad. And I don't think that we've come out of that. We became more codependent Social media. And social media just makes people sad, doesn't it? It's the same effect as watching the news all the time. It just makes you sad. I'm convinced that our world is so deeply sad because we are in a new age identity crisis. And I use the word identity crisis intentionally. Look around, man. Everybody around in the culture wants to use that word identity and latch it onto so many things that just are sad. That who you are is determined by your sexual identity. 
Who you are is determined by your gender identity, your vocational identity. They group you into this category or this category because of your political identity. Because I think social media is crippling us and convincing us that our identities are in what these categories say about us instead of what God says about us. Your identity, please hear me say this, your identity is none of those garbage things. Your identity is that you were created in the image of God, bought at a price, and adopted into the family of God, and none of the other things are eternal. That's it. And what God says about you is more true than what Fox News says about you, your random dummy on Facebook says about you, or what anybody else may say about you. What God says about you is the truth. And don't latch on your identity to anything other than what God says about you. Created in the image of God, bought at a price, and adopted into an eternal family to hell with the rest of it, to be honest with you. Because that's exactly where it's going. It's trash. And on Senior Recognition Day, there is no greater message, I think, than the one that I just shared with you. Do not attach your identity to anything except what God's Word says about you. Period. Because the world will want to rake you into their own agenda. It's coming. Anything less is faux identity. We must root our identity in Jesus. And I say that because that's exactly what happens with Mary. Notice that she is overcome and like a clear shift in who she is simply because she interacted with the person of Jesus. And how many times do we see that in Scripture? Someone has an interaction with the risen Christ, with the miracle, miracle working Jesus, they are changed. May it be so for us, church. She clings to Jesus, which is why he says, don't cling to me. Maybe she falls at his feet, not sure, but Jesus gives a sobering instruction. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. We're going to keep reading in just a moment. What he's saying is, he's not diminishing that this is a time for joy, but it's also a time for sharing the good news. Not for clutching to me, he's saying, as if I were some jealously guarded private dream come true. He's saying, stop clinging to me. Gently saying, stop clinging to me. Why? He says, yeah, but that's something else you need to do. He says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he had said these things to her. Jesus says, go to my disciples, tell them that I am in the process of returning to my Father and your Father. See, Mary immediately goes and tells the disciples of his resurrection we must look beyond the action itself to the substance of her declaration, of God's declaration through Jesus. What was dead has been made new. I mentioned earlier in verse 1 that there was a detail that I wanted to come back and talk about for just a moment. And it tells us the day that this happened. Verse 1 in, verse, in chapter 20 says, Now it was on the first day of the week. First day of the week, after the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest, Saturday. The first day of the week would be a Sunday. It was the weekly beginning of new work. Everybody rested on the Sabbath. On Sunday, they got up and started getting to work again. People worked for days one through six, but on the seventh day, Saturday, they rested. God did the same thing, right? He worked day one, two, three, four, five, six, and he rested on the seventh day. In God's creation, when he, when he began the work, Adam was the firstborn of mankind, a gardener 
in the Garden of Eden. But he sinned, and because he sinned, we all have sinned with him and fallen from union with God. That's why Romans 5, 12 says this. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. But in this garden, the tomb garden, a new garden, it is once again day one the first day of the week, and God is creating again. It's not a coincidence that Jesus is mistaken as a gardener because he is the new Adam, the new gardener. And the firstborn of the not original creation that fell and flawed and sinned, but the new creation on the first day of the week, Sunday. Romans 5, 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass, hear Adam in this and Jesus in this, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Church, listen. When Jesus conquered the grave, more was accomplished than you becoming a sinner welcomed as a mere guest into the kingdom of God. Jesus says in verse 17, go tell my followers, I'm going to my father and what? Your father. Your father. Guys, in the gospel, you were transformed from being an old Adam to new Adam from a cosmic, eternal criminal under the punishment of death into a child of God. And if that ain't an identity shift, I don't know what is. In Christ, you do not co-earn the wages of sin, but you are a co-heir of eternal life through the firstborn of the new creation. You know, there's 108 times in the book of John that Jesus refers to God as Father. 27 times he says, my father. 71 times he refers to the father, but only one time, and it's right here, does he describe him as the disciple's father. That's significant. It's also the only time in John that he calls the disciples his brothers. It's significant. No longer severed from God now in his family. And this is the great, <laughs> this is the great aha moment. The gift of salvation, the gift of adoption, the gift of salvation, the gift of adoption, the aha moment, and we're talking about it today. From the fall to the family, from death to life, from eternal punishment to eternal peace, from conflict to comfort, from enmity to embrace, from empty to full, from despair to delight, from perishing to purchase, from hopeless to hopeful, from tragedy to triumph, from sorrow to celebration. That's the good news of the gospel. And we're talking about that today. And may today be the aha moment for you. The gift of salvation, the gift of adoption, the core of the aha moment, and the catalyst of yours and my daily worshipful response. We've tasted today. May you taste. I mentioned Shiloh earlier, our five-year-old. She turned six in July, and she loves Sonic cheeseburgers. Because uh, who doesn't? You crazy people. Um, when she was in uh, the womb, and, and Brooke was pregnant with Shiloh, uh, this is kind of crazy, it's kind of weird. 
Um, like, talk about sixth sense, kind of weird. But Brooks, like, fiend craving was Sonic cheeseburgers. <laughs> and that's weird, right? She loved Sonic cheeseburgers while she was pregnant with, Bro- or with uh, Shiloh. And uh, now Shiloh's, like, obsessed with Sonic cheeseburgers. She gets really excited whenever um, we come home and we got some Sonic for her. Um, I always get her one when we go. It doesn't fill her up, though. She's like, I'm still hungry. There's more cheeseburgers. It's like, settle down, child. You know, be grateful. But recently, I, uh, I surprised her. <laughs> I got her two cheeseburgers. But I only gave her one initially. And so she finished it, and, you know, like a rabid dog, she wasn't satisfied. And uh, she's like, I'm still hungry. And guess what daddy did? Yeah, took the moment and I said, I've got a special surprise for you. So I go to the bag, reach in there, and she just lights up. I bring her another cheeseburger. I love talking about this. <laughs> I give her another cheeseburger, and she is so, set, so excited, and she unwraps it and puts it on her plate, and um, she rubs her cheek on it. <laughs> which is just great um, <laughs> and we all laughed at that and she's just such a goofy funny kid uh, she rubbed her cheek on it and I just it made me so happy because I love watching her embrace a gift the reason why she rubbed her cheek on it I don't know physiologically why that was her response but I'm going to tell you inwardly why that was her response the reason why she did that is because she's tasted it before And when it was put in front of her, she was reminded of her love for the gift. Some of you guys come in here every Sunday, like Shiloh, when she sees me walk in with a Sonic bag. She's excited because you know the gift and you're ready to be filled and praise God for that. Isn't what we're doing just a precious gift? And we're tasting I get emotional. I just want to rub my cheek on it. (laughs) And praise God that we can taste the gift. But some of you guys come in this place Sunday after Sunday. But if you were honest and you stopped fooling other people and really stopped fooling yourself, we could peer in and see the truth the truth is that you feel cold you feel empty you think there's something wrong with you because everybody else seems to really be thriving have it together but you feel hollow and you don't know why it isn't because you're not trying hard enough you're here it's one of two reasons it could be this It could be that you've never actually tasted. That you've seen everybody's plates get set. Sounds good in theory. But you've never tasted and seen the good news of the gospel. And so you leave here hollow because you haven't feasted. Will you eat with us today? He's calling you. The table is set. Repent and believe. This is the good news of the gospel. Or maybe you feel hollow for a different reason. 
and that it's really just been a long time since you did taste. And you feel stagnant and dull and you don't know why. And you don't know why you can't taste it anymore. You know, I can't say for sure why that is, but I just want to encourage you and say this. Don't shackle yourself in chains where God has already promised that he will set you free. I think the reason you feel cold is because you still bear the guilt that Jesus has already said you're guiltless of. What was the most important moment in your life? I started with that question. It's a trick question. Because the most important moment in your life happened before you breathed your first breath. 2,000 years before you breathed your first breath. Most important moment in your life was the moment that Jesus, for the first time, breathed the oxygen of new life. The aha moment. So I'm going to leave you with this question. If God is turning the lights on for you today and dropping that puzzle piece there, that you may have life, what are you waiting for?